Bibles to Titus chapter 2, we'll be in verses 1 through 9 today. While you're turning there, one of the reasons I'm blessed to be at Amelia Baptist is I get to be surrounded, as someone who's only been married for eight years, I get to be surrounded by couples who have been married for 30, 40, 50, even 60 years. Um, and it makes me think, uh, when I think about the anniversaries that we have here and what a blessing they are, it makes me think about my own wedding vows, um, which is something I like to do often. Uh, for, for better or for worse, being a pretty big one. Um, you know, and that ranges, really, small things, middle-of-the-road things, pretty big things. Um, and I think about the fact that it was not the repetition of those vows on that day that have led to a what I believe to be a loving, trusting relationship between me and my wife. It was our belief and loyalty to the one who those vows were made with, Jesus Christ, the, the, the head of a Christian marriage. And in the same way, our faith is not powered by how well we repeated a prayer or walked an aisle or filled out a member card. In fact, our faith is powered by a very specific message. You see, it seems today that the gospel has become, the truth of the gospel and every detail in it, has sort of become a diving board to Christianity. When in all actuality, the truth of the gospel is the water of the pool that we are swimming in as Christ followers. It's not just means to get to the end. It's, it's the entire thing that sustains us. It's everything we are. It's everything we believe. You see, and the reason for that, I see that played out in pulpits around the world and in churches is there's a temptation among us to bypass sound doctrine, to bypass the specific message of the gospel and kind of move or go straight towards behavior modification. When in actuality, curbing your behavior will never create sincere belief, but sincere belief will always curb your behavior. If our lifestyle fails basically to reflect the character of God, then what we've done, whether it be inadvertently or um, purposely, is we've neutralized our testimony. Because of this, the letter to Titus, which, is, which has a very specific theme, shows that the gospel or sound doctrine really, if we place our faith in sound doctrine in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it places moral obligations on all of us believers regardless of your age or station in life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, which was a historic figure written about constantly, it seems, uh, just before this scholar, this Christian, was executed by the Nazis for his attempt to uh, assassinate Hitler, uh, he said this, The Christian's duty and usefulness lie exactly in, not outside of, the circumstances under which his life is lived. In other words, true changes, those that take place from within, simply do not occur without an intimate relationship with God that we've been given by grace through faith in Christ. Believing the gospel should lead, as it is appropriated by faith, to a life that is consistent with Christian doctrine. Anything else really is contrary, or contradictory rather, to the message that Paul has for us in Romans 6. Do you remember Romans 6, starting in verse 1? What shall we then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Basically, it's like, how does that work? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death also? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, which is a historical fact, we too might walk in the newness of life. Sound doctrine applied to real life is believers walking in the newness of life. We do not place our faith in ourselves and others and material possessions, even in religion, because they have proven time and time again to lead to emptiness. They are sinking sand. We place our faith in the promise and ministry of God the Father in Christ Jesus the Son. In chapter 2 of Titus in verse 1, Paul speaks of the importance of sound doctrine before uh, giving Uh, the church several stages of application. Usually a pastor has to work a little bit for the sermon, but this passage here is just, here's what it's about in verse one. And then he does all the application for me. So thank you, Paul. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, But it is not an easy text to hear. Um, It was not an easy text to write. Uh, I didn't write the text to preach. Um, Just let you know, I didn't write the Bible in case you were confused. If you are able, will you at this time please stand as we read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. May we always remember the powers in the Word of God. Church, you may be seated. Thank you for standing. So what does Paul mean What does Paul mean by sound doctrine? So over the last few sermons, Pastor Neil has demonstrated that Titus is fairly clear end to end in this letter's main concern. It is that belief, our belief will come out in our behavior and in our lifestyle. If we are followers and believers of Jesus Christ, people will see it. We see this in the first chapter of Titus. And he kind of puts a contrast, right? Because the land of Crete is just filled to the brim with vileness and pagan worship. And here is Titus planting churches along the islands of Crete. And it was important for Titus and the church planters there to understand that you are to be in the world, not of the world. That you provide a countercultural example of a light in the darkness. You are to be different, not like the world. But you are to reach the world, right? That's the difficulty. You have to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the kingdom of God grows. But you aren't supposed to identify with them. You are supposed to be a different looking person than the world around you. And somewhere in the 1990s, churches just 
started to implement this mentality of the church must look like the world to reach the world. Well, here's the fact. If the church looks like the world in order to reach the world, the church then eliminates the reason for the church. The point of the church existing is that it's the city on a hill, is that it's different. It's not the ways of the world. You don't break this down to methods and tactics in order to increase your attendance. You're faithful to the truth, and you let the Spirit of God save. You let the Spirit of God work. You're just faithful messengers of the powerful message of the gospel. So Paul is warning Titus about false teachings in this letter, which are rampant today in our country and even community, which is why we must be on guard, which is why we must fill our heads, minds, and hearts with sound doctrine. So what are our lines of defense? Well, first, a biblical church establishes elders to lead the people well. Pastors, Christian leadership. These are qualifications listed in elders. Neil went through this, I think, a couple weeks ago. They must hold specific beliefs aligning with the Holy Scriptures. Not only hold beliefs, they must live out those beliefs. They are to be above reproach. This is not a position in the church you take uh, without hesitation, without proper thought. Understanding the weight of what's involved. I don't think we understand what above reproach really means. It means you can't constantly be subject to character criticisms all the time. You can't be so controversial that everyone just thinks about your flaws because you've diminished your power in delivering a faithful message that way. My goodness, man. Neil is, uh, is one of my mentors, and, and I love him, but he hurts my feelings a lot. <laughs> Isn't that a weird relationship? It's like, bro, can you just let me do my thing, you know? And he's like, no, I love you too much. He tells me things about, these are how, how we can determine who our real friends are. They tell us the things about ourselves that our flesh doesn't want to hear, even if it means they're less popular in your eyes. But true spiritual growth is supposed to hurt, even when it's delivered compassionately, in love. If it's true, if it hurts our flesh, it's going to sting it's like when you get an open wound and your mom comes like with rubbing alcohol and she's like, if it burns, it means it's working, right? Like that's the mentality. If you're in the Christian church and you're hearing the gospel and you're hearing the truth of the word. If it hurts, good. That means it's working. Apply it. Finish it off. Be people whose belief isn't just something we sit on like a garden in, in our apartment complex that no one can see, but something that we live out, something that's the first thing they see is how devoted to Christ and his teachings we are. But in chapter 2, Paul makes it clear that sound doctrine doesn't just involve the elders or the leadership. Sometimes we get, we're guilty of that. We're guilty of saying, look, as long as our leaders understand the Bible really well, we're all right. No, this is a call for anyone who professes Christ as Lord and Savior to know the word well. How can you live out something you don't know? It involves the whole church from top to bottom. How to live good lives in accordance with sound Teaching or sound doctrine, also known as competent, reliable teaching. That's the goal. And if we do this, if we commit to these things, it will result in our good, our growth, most importantly, God's glory. And that's the whole reason for our existence is that our lives are beacons of God's glory and his honor and his praise. I had a friend and pastor put it this way in a sermon once. Sound doctrine is gospel truth that has you looking in three directions. Upward to the beauty and glory of the God who saved you, backward to the price he paid for your sin, and forward to where he is taking you and what he is making you. 
That is why sound doctrine is so vital for the church today and forever, because it still has purpose, still has point, still has direction, and we serve a living, risen Savior, not a dead, dusty book. So, let's start with the older men, shall we? Older men. (laughs) Beginning in verse 2, we find our first stage of application. Look down at your Bible with me. Verse 2 says this, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. Now look, real quick, some context. This passage is not stereotyping as if all older men act a certain way. All right? It's not having you say older men or read older men out loud and just immediately start thinking of Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. That's not the point of this text. It just means that each age group brings particular temptations and struggles. Paul doesn't give us a list unfortunately, to determine whether we qualify in the older men category or the younger men category. It would be much easier if there was like a side note that said, if you were alive during Gerald Ford's presidency, you're in the older men category. But we don't have that. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I'm not calling you old if you were alive in the Gerald Ford presidency. (laughs) I'm just saying I don't know. But we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Of course, age, this is something we need to remember, Age is never a guarantee of spiritual and emotional maturity. True spiritual maturity comes through growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But older male believers should be models of maturity for younger men. They should be involved in the mentorship and growth of younger men. Much of what Paul says, he repeats to the other groups by saying the word likewise. But there's one instruction that Paul only gives older men. Do you know what it is? Endure. Tells older men in the faith to endure. And the temptation for the older man is to get to the last third of their lives and start to coast. Many feel like they've done enough. And, and they may be tired. They've either made all the money they need to make or they have given up persevering in the faith or teaching others to do the same. And so they start to think about themselves, hobbies, interests. They grow weary of giving themselves to service. This is not picking on people, by the way, with physical limitations. This is, like all of Christ's teachings, a matter of the heart. In old age, have they become cynical? Have they become grumpy. And I've learned in just 33 years of life that that is what happens. Cynicism and grumpy is what happens when you focus on yourself rather than God's will and his glory. Paul tells older men to endure. In other words, he tells them to stay in the game, tough it out, be self-controlled, be temperate goes on to say, continue placing the needs of others before your own. Second your desires to the needs of the church, to the needs of your household, so that the next generation benefits from your example. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with making a pile of money. But that should pale in comparison to walking a younger man through a messy divorce. That should pale in comparison to walking a younger man through a broken, hurting marriage, through alcoholism, through cancer. Nothing should be able to compare 
to the joy or peace that a Christian older man has by walking someone through where they've once been. There's nothing wrong with owning a lot of property, but that should pale in comparison to growing the kingdom of God, to mentoring young believers in the faith. It should be a heart cry, but it can't be if we're too focused on ourselves, on our own passions, on our own will. I want the younger man to be able to look to older men in our church and go, you've persevered through such suffering. Not amazed at the older man, but amazed at Christ in the older man. And I do not say the word suffering without understanding the weight. The men and women in this church are no stranger to suffering. We've had now five families in our congregation bury their adult children since January of this year. With more families who still experience that pain from losing their children years ago. I can't get there based on just experience. I can't feel exactly what they're feeling, can I? But is the Word of God somehow less true in the times of our suffering? Does it have less power? Is there less point to suffering? Just because we are the ones walking through it? Endure. Paul is telling older men, endure. Because, unlike the world, our suffering is not without meaning. Our suffering leads to perseverance, endurance, character, and hope. And not just hope in anything. Hope that the Holy Spirit brings and sustains us through that suffering. This charge is given to older men so a young man can look up to an older man and think, they've gone through so much, how can they still praise his name? The older man can look at the younger man and say, I gave up my own strength quite some time ago. I am now sustained by the same strength that endured the pain of the nails. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because of sound doctrine, because of the truth of the gospel, a biblical church can be filled to the brim with mentorship, multi-generationally. Imagine what it would do for a young man feeling lost and hopeless to walk in here. To look a man, an older man who's been in the faith for quite some time, look him in the eyes and say, what can I do? I can't go through it. I can't walk through it. And the older man looks back and through the spirit of God says, I've walked it, but I didn't walk it alone. I've walked it, but I need to tell you, son, the weight of this world is no match for the one who bore the weight of the cross. Through the relationships of mentorship, suffering is not wasted. It's watched. It's watched by those who haven't yet experienced the inevitability of pain and suffering to the degree that you have. This is why we will soon, as a church, be introducing mentorship into church life. Allowing people the opportunity to better influence and invest in younger generations. This is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a biblical one. Where the men teach younger men, the women teach younger women. Not a Bible study and not a bunch of stories talking about how big the fish you caught was. Real, one-on-one, listening to each other, walking through the faith together from different seasons of life. This is what the church was always supposed to be, but we've split each other up into cliques. We split each other up into programs to better control the atmosphere, to better grow in attendance. I don't care. 
I don't care about the six, seven hundred, eight hundred member attendance. I care about the people God has drawn to in the Baptist Church growing in the Lord through his gospel by way of his word. That's the belief. That's the core belief of this church and what we should all share. Henry Ward Beecher once said, it is not the going out of the port, but the coming in that determines the success of a voyage. Finish strong, endure, fathers in the faith. And verse 3, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent. I had a professor uh, at my seminary once walk us through this passage, and I'll never forget his example. He was talking about the word reverent, and, uh, which means respectful. And he said, older women can sometimes quit caring what people think, so they lose their filters. Now, I quoted this on purpose. This is what they call a deflection. They lose their filters on speaking their mind or talking badly about those that aggravate them. It's not funny. I shouldn't laugh. He said, when men and women are young, you are met with the realization that two things will start to lessen over time. Your outward appearance and your filters. And when those things are gone, if you have an ugly spirit, there's nothing there that can hide it anymore. In truth, your ugly spirit was always there. It was just masked by physical beauty and your ability ability to apply filters. It was really silent after the professor said that. There's a few married men in there going. (laughs) But by contrast, by awesome, loving contrast to the Spirit of God, there are older women who are so sweet that they seem more beautiful in their older age than they did when they were young. Because their beautiful character has grown and shined through anything else. Because character is more beautiful than physical charms. A sweet spirit comes by cultivating character in the gospel. By not just making Jesus a part or a portion of your life, but by fully submitting to him in everything that you have and to his will. This is what makes verse 4 possible. Verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. This verse is just full of controversial phrases in today's world. Seriously, whenever someone is on a talk show and wants to like come after the Bible, this is one of the things they say. Doesn't Paul say that men should dominate women? No, that's not what he says. That's not what Paul means. Tell them to be busy at home. Is that him? Is that a man telling me my place? Please don't interpret the scriptures by the culture. Interpret the scriptures by the context given you, written to you by God himself. It says this. Tell them to be busy at home is not vilifying a woman working outside the home is as much as it is pointing, this is the point, pointing to the tendency for young women like young men to be lured away from God-given responsibilities by the promise of fulfillment elsewhere. Mothers and fathers are given, and you can't escape this in the text, mothers and fathers are given specific responsibilities in the home. God in the gospel says Your primary goal should not be to fulfill yourself, but to faithfully serve him. Older women teach younger women where loyalty to Christ entails sacrifice. Embrace it with joy. Find your fulfillment not in self-actualization, but in serving the Lord. How many of us can say that? We find our greatest joy in serving the Lord and obeying his word. That's the point. That's the goal. This is a counterculture area of thinking. Christians in Crete, Christians today, regardless, it's counterculture where the values of the world and the values of the kingdom just are in stark contrast. If the world is right, okay, let's just pretend we live in a world where the world is right. 
The world is right and happiness and fulfillment only come from self-actualization, then people who stand in your way of you becoming all you think you can be, they become annoyances rather than people you minister to. They become stumbling blocks in your goal to be a better you. Your kids start to be seen as accessories rather than the people you're supposed to lay down your life for. If you get pregnant and it isn't convenient, abort the baby. If your parents in their older age become a hindrance to your career or worse, your convenience, do what you can to forget about them. Even your best friendships with this way of thinking will become all about how they can help you achieve a goal. That's abuse. That's not love. Jesus found fulfillment in washing feet because that is what the Father told him to do. He did not find his fulfillment in the importance of the task of making sure the disciples' feet were cleaned. He found it in the approval of the Father. If you are a woman in this room, wife and mother, who God has assigned to care for your children and establish a home, career or no career, find your fulfillment in the approval of the Father, not in the praise of the world. If Jesus found fulfillment in washing feet, then we can find fulfillment in changing diapers and dealing with cranky spouses. Ladies, your fulfillment above all else is hearing, well done, good and faithful servants. Aim at that. Not what the world thinks about you. That's moth food. Dads are not off the hook, though. Because the dads are sitting back like, yeah. That's right. Dads are not off the hook. If you are a husband and or a father and your freedoms look exactly the same as they did before you were married, you are doing marriage wrong. If single you and married you have the same amount of time to do what you want to do, you aren't serving your family enough. You're not tired enough. Your life will change when your role changes because that's how God intended it. I can't do nothing fun? No, that's not what I said. But what you do and how you have your fun and how much time you spend your fun should be a distant second to bringing glory to God by obeying His commands. And this happens like weirdly in my life now. I've only been married eight years and I have two kids and one on the way. And the other day, my buddies were talking about something where at once I would have jumped right in and talked about the same stuff. But I jump into the conversation and I'm like, oh, I know what you mean. Tangled is so much better than frozen. You know, like they're, ta- they're not talking about tangled and frozen at all. They're talking about how one movie is better than the other movie in the same genre, but the world prefers the worst movie. And I'm like, I know what you mean. It's the same way with Tangled and Frozen. And they're just looking at me like, what's Tangled and Frozen? I'm just like, just some movies? You should check them out. (laughs) I have kids. I have kids. I don't like it. I don't like the movies. But Tangled is better than Frozen. Just a fact. Just a fact. I'm realizing now by these bits and pieces that my life is changing because my role changed and that's okay. I don't have to be ashamed of that. I mean, I should be a little ashamed of what I just said, but I don't have to be crazy ashamed. Do you know why? Because one day, one day when we get to heaven, do you know that everything we built and everything we work to accomplish will be turned off? 
numbers of books, numbers of acres we own. The only light left on on that side of heaven is faithfulness. That's what's left. That's how we'll be evaluated. Our faithfulness to this. You can't be faithful to something that's collecting dust on your bookshelf. That's what we live for. And faithfulness cannot happen apart from sound doctrine. We see that in 1 Corinthians 4.2. In heaven we are rewarded not for our accomplishments but for our faithfulness. Genesis 15.6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The most important thing in all of history is faithfulness to the truth of God amidst, amidst a world of lies. So Paul adds, he continues on, and urge young women to be subject to their husbands. Getting all the controversial statements out today. While Neil's safe in Nashville. I'm getting all of them out today, all right? Marriage, by the way, is a dance in which both partners reenact a part of the gospel. The husband does it by loving his wife like Christ loved the church, which means the wife putting her wants, um, which means the man puts her wants and needs ahead of his own to the point that he would lay down his life for her. The wife does this by submitting her will to her husband's. It's not about superiority. It has to do with positions reflecting the triune God and the saving gospel. If this relationship is done in the right way, when we see a healthy Christian marriage, it's a beautiful thing. It's not disgusting and archaic. Equal in value, but different in role. If you are not married, typically it's your father. If you have no father, then submit yourself under the caretaking of a biblical church and let people serve and love you and guide you in the word. As Amy Amy Jo's husband, I am not to dominate my wife. I'm not sure I think I could. She's really strong. I need to put her needs first. And in response, she does what is often pretty difficult for her. She yields to me a decision-making responsibility. Which, let's face it, that's not easy for any of us to do, whichever gender role we are. And also, oddly, I know that my wife can convince me to think a decision I made was my idea when it really wasn't. Like, I also know that so there's like a lot of trust in the marriage. So I'm like, was that my idea? No, I have no idea. Like, you just. The Titus 2 marriage, the man is laying his life down for a wife, a wife submitting her will to her husbands who have both submitted their will to God's. But Paul then turns it back to the men. Likewise, he goes after you younger men, urge the younger men to be. And he says this, and this is it, self-controlled. Self-control. Interesting that the only word of exhortation given to younger men is self-control, isn't it? It's not an accident. Why? Because the Achilles heel of most younger men is that they are ruled by their fleshly desires. Pleasure, fame, recognition, finding themselves worthy in the world's version of success. D.L. Moody once said, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man totally sold out to him. You can't be totally sold out to him if you're sold out for all these other things. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. So how do young men fight this? How do young men stay self-controlled? We are to look to the grace of God and the cost of our salvation. When a young man is tempted to fantasize about a woman that they are not married to, we think about the body of Jesus who was beaten for those transgressions. This is what sound doctrine looks like in real life. We replace one image with another. This is what 
sound doctrine was always supposed to look like. Intentional thinking upon the message of the gospel. It's supposed to be a fight. It's supposed to be difficult. That's how you know it's worth it. And in verse 9, Paul ends this first passage of chapter 2 talking about bondservants, addressing bondservants. We've done a a sermon on this several months ago on the issue of slavery or the usage of slaves in, in the text. The Bible lays down principles for both slaves and slave owners that, if followed, would actually abolish slavery. As it actually did and has in much of the world. Also, we need to be reminded that the idea of the sacredness of human life and the dignity of all men was practically unknown in ancient society. It's a relatively new concept. By proclaiming the love of Christ and the worth of all men as created in the image of God, what does that do to slavery? It makes the evils of slavery more and more evident. And you realize that everyone was made in the image of God, right? But as this verse applies to us today, as someone employed or under the authority of another, our work should put our hope in and love for God on display. We come home or we complain, we vent it all out, and it's okay because I'm just venting. Venting, bad venting can do damage to your soul. Because you're just consistently, habitually reminding yourselves what you hate about the job you have. And he gives us these characteristics, these attitudes that should be on display under authority. Here are the attitudes. Integrity. If you have the ability to steal or cheat, don't do it. Excellence. Doing everything for the glory of God, not to appease man. Servanthood. Putting yourself last. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And most importantly, the thing that ties us all together as believers in Jesus Christ. Hope. Hope. For a believer, their work does not define them. You are not defined By your work, you are defined because you have been made in the image of God. Your identity is Christ Jesus as a believer, first and foremost. That's who you are before you're anything that has to do with your job. When you live out these four attitudes through long-suffering, you get to the whole point of the passage, which is in verse 10. So that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the goal, church. That our lives be living sacrifices unto God, a sacrifice made to honor Him. Now let's close with just three little final observations of this passage. Number one, these behaviors are our best witness to a fallen world. They will read us before they read the Bible. The world may not like it when we talk about these things, but guess what? They are intrigued when we practice what we preach. That is of interest to them. They've seen hypocrisy their entire life. If they see people actually practicing what they preach and living out their beliefs, they will take notice of that. That would be the best way we can evangelize the gospel. Number two, the best testimony to the gospel happens in these mundane things in life that we often ignore. Family worship. Acts of service in the home and in the church. Normal relationships are the battlefields of spiritual growth. Heroic Christianity is not born on the mission field. Heroic Christianity is born at work and at home. Finally, these behaviors flow directly out of a belief in the gospel, signifying more and more the importance to preach, teach, and practice sound doctrine. You know, I know nothing of gardening, so I applaud those of you who do. Congratulations, because I know nothing of it. 
Um, the Whitakers are the reason I have anything that grows in my yard. But I'm not going to blame you for my yard. Um, so if you look at a rose bush, you see that two ways, there are two ways to get roses on a bush. You could tape or staple the fallen roses back onto the bush, which I've been tempted to do. And you know what? It will look like a rose bush to people who are passing by looking at your house. Your wife may not even take a long look at it. She just may walk right by it and go, it looks really good. And I'm like, thank you. But you see, throughout time, that gets tiring. These fruits of our lives, our behavior, they are like roses on a rose bush. If the Christian life is just taping or stapling fruit onto the bush, that doesn't make that bush any more alive. We will not be saved through behavioral modification. There will come a time if all you've ever done has curbed your behavior because you thought Jesus wanted you to do that, that you will abandon Christ thinking you've met him when all you've ever met are a list of rules. But there's another way. Look upwards to the glory of God who saved you. Meditate on his teachings, learn his truth. Look backwards to the price he paid for you to know him well. And always, always look forward to what he's making you. Past suffering, past pleasures. Church, rejoice. Knowing him, growing in him, is us conforming to the image of the Son. That's exciting. Let's pray. Father God, may the Spirit of the Lord continue to grow naturally in our hearts. Father, more than anything, may, may we burn so brightly in our behavior for you. May you strengthen us in word, in prayer, and in fellowship. May we be eager to gather together. May we be eager to invest in one another. May we be eager to confess or repent of our sin. May we be eager to thank you for the truth of God's word each and every day. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.